for the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Colin Marshall coming to you as usual from LARB HQ here in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, speaking today with a man who is a founding editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. He's the author of the books That Summertime Sound and The Sting. He's written for many a publication. He's been working on adaptations of novels like Steve Erickson's Zeroville and uh, the book Happy Baby by uh, Stephen Elliott. But we're here to talk today about his brand new novel from Tin House called American Dream Machine. It's Matthew Spector here with me. Matthew, how much could I call this book American Dream Machine a novel of the the false staff of 20th century hollywood talent representation uh that's a that's a generous assessment but uh but uh if you you know in thinking of of bo you're 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 referring to bo the central character as being somewhat false staffian in aspect i would say more than somewhat but you can tell me you no know, i would i would i would say that's fair i mean i would say you know every 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 character every interesting character probably has a a, a line of other characters behind him and uh uh, you know, Falstaff being the, the archetypal large man in literature, I certainly had him in mind. <laughs> <laughs> now, we have a number of agents in this book. The central agent, Bo, is, is only one of them, but we have a novel here, a multi-generational Hollywood novel, you might say, and you know, some would call it a warts and all portrayal of Hollywood, but I wonder, you know, there's there's a bit of a, a wall you face right away because seems like so many novels and movies that come my way they they pitch themselves as this is the this is the book that finally deglamorizes tinseltown and i think to myself well tinseltown has been repeatedly deglamorized for the last 80 years so with that precedent a pre deglamorized tinseltown did you think of it as being a pre deglamorized thing hollywood i thought of it really as a as a subject that i wanted to treat um you know, not not. I, w- I wasn't thinking of it in terms of glamorizing or deglamorizing mm. it. I was really just thinking of trying to treat it as a place like any other place. Mm. Um, you know, I I grew up here, and I I feel like every so many other writers that I care passionately about have a strong relationship to place. I mean, there's mm. you know, people think of Philip Roth, they associate him with with Newark. People think of Faulkner, they associate him with Mississippi. People think of Saul Bellow, they associate him with Chicago. And I thought this is my place. Mm. Um, it's the place that I grew up in it's it's a place uh towards which i have you know strong and uh ambivalent complicated feelings i both love it very much and find much in it to to criticize which i think is is a you know both of those things are are very helpful in Mm. in in treating your subject when writing and i and i thought is it possible to write a novel about hollywood that is not gossipy that is not uh satirical or at least not exclusively satirical and that treats the people who live here and work here as um, more or less ordinary human beings. No matter how grotesque or no matter how distorted they might be by their circumstances, they're still people with regular, complex interior lives. And I thought it was worth doing that because I couldn't think of, a, of another book about Hollywood that had. Even the, even the great books about Hollywood, maybe especially those books, seem to sort of um, not do that. They seem mm-hmm. to do something else. Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, I would say something similar. The the Hollywood novels I read get, get a little bit stuck. They get swept up in the Hollywoodiness of Hollywood. What, what is it? They get caught in some kind of mire, typically, that American Dream Machine doesn't. You've just described your, your goals in avoiding that. But what is it that, that is snagging so many Hollywood stories, whether they're films or novels or what have you? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think I think that 
uh, you know, one, one of the things that I think is that it's, it's very difficult for a place or a culture to get around the ideas it has about itself. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's part of what, what sustains, you know, a, a country or a city or a, a culture of any kind. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, people who live in Manhattan romanticize Manhattan and, you know, somehow that romantic Manhattan, uh, you know, becomes the place where they live. Right. And, um, and that by the way, is not, not a bad thing at all. I mean, in, in a certain sense, it's what, it's what keeps Manhattan from, you know, it's what makes Manhattan a wonderful place and not just a slum. Uh, and by the same token, I think that people, you know, that there's a, that there's a sort of, um, natural and very understandable impulse to, um, demonize Los Angeles a little bit or to, or to, you know, vilify it both on the grounds of its beauty and on the grounds of its, um, of its cheapness, you know, mm. um, those things are, are certainly real, but they're not complete. Mm. And my interest, you know, again, was just in, in trying to, trying to draw something a little bit more complete. But, but if the question is, why do people do that? Um, you know, I think it, I, and, and specifically as it relates to the motion picture business, I think that, I think that, um, the movie business disappoints a lot of people. Mm. It disappoints a lot of people who work in it. Uh, it disappoints a lot of people who view its products yes. at the moment. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that disappointment finds its way into portrayals of it, understandably mm. enough. Most of Los Angeles is not Hollywood. I mean, that's literally true in the case of Hollywood, the place, but most of Los Angeles is not Hollywood, the industry. I, I think of, this interview with Quentin Tarantino on Charlie Rose when Pulp Fiction just was big, just just out, and he Tarantino described his movie as being a story about Hollywood, not the industry, but the town. American Dream Machine strikes me as a story about the industry, but also the town. I mean, it's would you call it an equal balance? This is this is about Los Angeles and about the industry. Was that your goal? Yeah, I, w I would consider that accurate. I spent I spent. Um you know, it was a lot of work while I was writing the book to make sure that it never got stranded inside the movie business, which is a, which is a, just a sort of tight prison. It wasn't, it wasn't where I wanted the book to uh, find its emotional and dramatic balance really. You know, I, I considered that just to be a, um, a backdrop and a very important backdrop. But in the end, this is really a story about, about, you know, regular human passions and, uh, familial ties and, and, uh, you know, all kinds of things that, that I think the book, I hope the book reflects outside of the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if, if, if this book, uh, I mean, I don't mind this being considered an, a novel, you know, that addresses Hollywood or that is about Hollywood mm -hmm. because it does. And it is, but if, if this book is simply, or if it were simply a Hollywood novel, whatever that means exactly, I might consider that to be something of a failure. Mm -hmm. But you do follow the, this Falstaffian talent agent, Bo Rosenwald, through many, many eras of Hollywood. And it's, it makes me wonder, I don't know if you use the word in the book, but people often consider uh, Hollywood films to be uh, the, the films of, of Philistines and uh, the place to be a, a hotbed of, of <laughs> Philistines. And the, er the eras you go through of Hollywood, there's so many kinds. I, I think of 
in in the seventies, I believe, or the late sixties, Bo gets involved producing a uh, a two lane blacktop type picture, and I was actually coincidentally at a screening of two lane blacktop right after reading this. So uh-huh. I'm glad I live in Los Angeles. Yeah. But later along uh, along the line in his life and career, you know, it, he he finds his greatest success in the schlockiest pure in the late eighties, generally considered to be the worst time in American film, uh, which says a lot about him that we'll get to. But tell me, do you think that? The level of philistinism in Hollywood goes up and down. Is it constant? How do you how do you think about it? Or if you think it's if there is a level of philistinism that's meaningful? Um, well, I think that there is, but I also think that there's one anywhere. And mm-hmm. I think I think that the level of philistinism in the culture somewhat rises mm-hmm. the more it the more it you know works towards a, a common denominator. I mean, the, the, one of the problems that that you know the movie movies have always faced is that. It is a it is a business that's forged upon consensus. Mm. Um, you know, a, a to write a novel, or you know, you 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 really have to get you have to get a series of to publish a novel. You have to get a series of people to say yes, mm. but you don't have to get a whole room full of you know. You don't have to get a crowd full of people to say yes to the same thing at the same time. Right. Um, and you know, in in that respect, it's it's uh, it's a little like democracy itself. Mm. You know, it's like lawmaking uh, things things water themselves down towards a, towards a flat point. Mm. Um, you know, I do think that, that there's a, there's a movement in the book as there is, a, a as there has been a movement through the last 50 years of American history towards a kind of, um, a certain homogenization and a sense that, you know, the, the movie business used to be predicated on individuals with, with ideas. Mm. Um, even if those ideas had to undergo a good deal of, of, you know, approval by committee, um, they were still, you know, at one point it was a, it was a director's medium. Um, and now it's a, it's a corporation's medium and, you know, Bo, uh, you know, over the span of his, of his life, uh, lives, lives through that particular set of sea changes much as, you know, as, as we all, as we all have. I mean, I think it's not just the movies that have become considerably more, uh, more corporate, uh, over the last, you know, 30 years. What went wrong in the late eighties? <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll add here: Bo makes a lot of money on a, a, I think, a chimp baseball movie named simply Pete, which cracked me up. I don't quite know why, but what you, clearly, you've written this book. You seem to understand that in that time, uh, about thirty, twenty-five years ago, things took a big dive in Hollywood, and I wonder why. Well, um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of reasons, and there, there, there. I don't. I'm not sure how how glibly I want to summarize them because I think they are kind of dramatized in the book, but certainly, um, you know, certainly as, as the studios, uh, consolidated somewhat, you know, right around 1990, the late eighties was sort of the moment that, uh, you know, Columbia TriStar were, were bought by Sony. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there was, there, obviously there'd been corporate ownership in the, in the, in the movie business for, you know, for quite a while before that. But I think, I think that, that happened not just in the movies, but it's happened in, in other areas of America, of American life as well. It's happened in publishing. Um, you know, there's just been this sense of, of, um, you know, the, the entities that, that create culture, uh, have become sub entities of, uh, larger global corporations. And the, the more that becomes true, um, the more, uh, athletic, you know, aesthetically constricted, uh, the culture itself becomes, you know, 
And I don't know, I don't know how much of a problem for most of his career Bo seems to have with that because you've got this man of, as, we, as we've said, Falstaffian appetites and he's ever trying to satiate them. And, and he, he seems to like nothing better or nothing besides getting on the phone and barking at people. I, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't really, I mean, does he even like that? Does, does Bo like anything? That's a good question. I think of him, he's a very protean fellow. Um, and the question of his own taste is one that the book carefully dodges. <laughs> That's why I'm asking right now. Throughout. Um, and, um, and it's interesting because I'm not sure. I mean, when I, when I, when I think about that and, and when I think about what it might reflect, how I might feel about that, I think, you know, I'm not sure we define ourselves so aggressively by our tastes. And sometimes I get, I, I find that incredibly tedious yes. in private life as if, as if, you know, the, the, the things that's the thing that's supposed to make me human are my tastes or my mm. opinions. And, you know, in so many ways, one of the things I find kind of, kind of noble about Bo is, is his refusal to simply be reduced to, uh, an opinion or a set of, mm. a set of, you know, aesthetic principles, which like any other principles can be, um, confining. Mm. You know, I, I, I think of Bo as, as, uh, you know, a very, a very large man in, in, in many respects, you know, he's, he's, he's large enough to encompass a lot of foolishness <laughs> and some very unexpected wisdom. He's mm. large enough to encompass some very abusive and, uh, you know, un, unconscious behavior as well as some very warm and humane behavior towards mm. others. And I think, uh, I think it's possible that nowhere is he wider than in his, in his allegiances, in his ability to attach to other people. Right. Um, it's a business of allegiances, at least when he begins. Yeah. And maybe sure. less so later. Yeah, well, <sighs> yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's true. And whether that's a, whether that reflects a change in the industry or a change in, in human perspective is hard to say. Is it better to ask what Bo wants than what he likes? I mean, he wants success. He wants women, food, uh, fast cars, uh, wants to spend money, make money and spend money. But I think he wants more than that. I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, I think all of those are sort of substitutions for, because, mm. you know, again, if, if you, if one defines Bo in terms of the, the, the things he's pursuing and mm. only intermittently through the book, does he actually pursue those things? In mm. fact, there are suggestions in it, you know, during some of the books kind of raw or moments that his, you know, um, that whatever's driving him, it's not sex. It's not money. It's not the things that he's, um, intermittently, but again, not excessively partaking in. I, I, I was, I hope careful to structure the book. I, I, I know I was careful to structure the book in such a way so that Bo was never, never seen to be chasing that stuff for very long. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think he's probably motivated by the things that, that, motivate everybody, which are a desire to be accepted and loved and feel at home in the world. And, uh, obviously by giving him some of the characteristics that I gave him, I just make that difficult for him mm -hmm. as it's difficult for everybody. And Bo is an agent. His colleagues are agents. His friends and enemies are often agents. What is an agent? <laughs> uh, you mean that literally? What is an agent? Well, we all know what an agent is. I mean, they, they get jobs for actors they, right. or, or other directors, or they, they hook people up together so that they can make a movie. But what, what, is an, what is the role of an agent? It's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that fed my, uh, you know, that fed my desire to 
make Bo an agent is the fact that my own father is an agent, mm-hmm. even if my own father doesn't resemble Bo very much at all. Um, you know, I did change Bo's role considerably over the course of the book. I mean, you know, he starts as an agent, then he becomes an independent producer, then he becomes an agent again, then he becomes a less independent producer. Um, and I think it's, I think it's telling that I changed that for him, you know, because an an agent's job is to, uh, because it's, it's a little bit of the difference between being a buyer and being a seller. Mm. Um, you know, and I needed him not to get stuck in one place for too long. Mm. Um, you know, I think of, a, of an agent as somebody who, who connects things, somebody who puts things together. And if you look at it in that somewhat broad and perhaps slightly homogenizing light, um, it's not such a leap between being an agent and being a writer. Hmm. Do agents, are agents hounded by the sense that they, that their profession is not as definable as that of a writer or a director or an actor that they that they make more money perhaps but are in a more nebulous place well i couldn't say i mean i i think that but i do think again that that probably um you can invert that into a question about mm-hmm. about you know what it's what it means to pursue the arts in life versus what it means not to mm-hmm. um a lot of people still seem to want to pursue the arts despite the fact that it's not a spectacularly sustainable profession mm-hmm. um it does not you know, except in very rare cases, make one very much money yeah. at all. Um, and so, you know, I would imagine that Bo is probably torn by, um, quietly torn perhaps by some of the things that I've heard expressed from, you know, from my own parents or from people that I know who aren't in the arts. I know lots of people who sort of vaguely, oh, I wish I could write, or I wish I could play music, or I wish I could paint. Um, but I don't think he has that overwhelming desire. I think he just likes, uh, he likes being in that milieu and he likes being able to, um, he likes being able to advocate on behalf of artists that I have observed in my, in my father, who was a man without, without any specific talent in that regard and by his own admission, Mm. but he, you know, he likes, he likes that he likes movies and he likes, being able to, you know, help his clients, his writer clients or his actor clients make the kind of movies that they want to make. Um, and no doubt he wants to see the movie. Like him, he himself wants to see the movie. Therefore let's get this thing. Let's help get this thing made. I want to watch this. thing. Well, he will also, I mean, I have, I have seen him, um, counsel his clients against doing, uh, uh, movies that might pay well, but aren't, but that he doesn't think are good. The sort of peeps of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure. <laughs> now, Bo's son, one of Bo's sons becomes, I guess, a, no- a no- he becomes a novelist, which I guess you might call a straight up artist, I suppose, uh, breaking from his father's pathway in, in that sense. But you do follow two generations here. You follow Bo's generation, what I guess he was, would have been born in the thirties and, and, uh, the sons born in the sixties, yeah. uh, your generation growing up in Los Angeles, it, what, sons of the industry what uh, what about that experience your generation's experience in, in that setting did you find it important to get across first or the elements that first came to mind like that that's something that it was true about the way i grew up here that i haven't read about i haven't seen on screen well i don't know if this was necessarily first but i, I will preface this by saying that almost everybody that i knew growing up seemed to go into the arts in some way, shape or form. You know, I can remember going to my 20 year high school reunion and seeing my headmaster and, and there was one person who's, who, 
who remarked that they had become a, a corporate lawyer and the headmaster of my school was just stunned. He just thought, <laughs> wow, now I've seen, you know, people, you know, we, they'll do anything, right. even go into, you know, even, even go into corporate life. Was it something about the school or something about your cohort? Well, I think it was something about, you know, something about growing up in the, in the, in the industry, which, mm -hmm. which fosters, you know, which, which, which is the arts, mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I think that if, if I had been born on the East coast and my, my cohort had all been the children of wall street types, then we probably would have gone a somewhat different direction. Mm -hmm. Um, even though I think that, you know, I, I, I think that the way that that pressure tends to exert itself between generations is, is, is common. Mm -hmm. You know, I think people drift towards what they know. And at the same time, uh, particularly if what they know is, is a, is a world as bloody and problematic as Hollywood can be, they, mm -hmm. they might fight it a little bit too. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to capture, you know, not, and it wasn't so much about, you know, being regionally specific so much as being humanely faithful to, uh, what I think is a very, very common thing, which is, uh, children critiquing the world of their fathers and being, or the world of their parents and being drawn to it at the same time. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a West coast thing. I think that's a, that's a real, uh, you know, deeply human movement between one generation and the next. And people who came more recently to Los Angeles, like me, I think it's something we often say to each other. Los Angeles is fun now. We like it now, but boy, we wouldn't have wanted, wouldn't have wanted to be there in the 70s. So tell me, growing up in the 70s and 80s in Los Angeles, uh, it seems like there was, there was fun to be had. Uh, it wasn't so bad. It has a bad image now from the movies of the time. But what was it like growing up here then? Uh, it's funny. My uh, friend and colleague, Dana Spiota, and I were just having a conversation, Dana Spiota, the novelist, mm -hmm. and Dana said to me, can we just agree that Los Angeles in the 70s and 80s was the best slash worst place in the world? Best of times, worst of times. Huh? And, uh, and I, you know, I, I do think it was, I do think it was both. And in some ways, I also just think that that's what adolescence is like. And again, you can look at, you can look at, I don't know, a book like The Ice Storm. You can look at Rick Moody's portrayal of uh, being a teenager on the East Coast in the 70s. And you can find a lot of commonality. I think, I think it was a, um, you know, as we know, sort of a famously uh, at once hedonistic and sort of an anhedonic time in American mm -hmm. life too. You know, there was, there was a sense of, of, um, you know, exuberance when it came to the use of chemicals and sex. And at the same time, a sense of those consequences mm -hmm. falling into place. And, and, uh, I think no matter where, you know, maybe not no matter where, but I think there were a lot of places, uh, in, in America and in the world where the seventies and eighties were, a were an interesting trial along those lines. Right. Your, your younger characters, especially they're split, whether geographically or in their, in their uh, consciousness between Los Angeles and New York. And I take it in the seventies, you ask somebody, what are the worst places in America? They say Los Angeles and New York, probably. I mean, they, it's, it was in, in either of the major cities, it was kind of that, that was the same situation, right? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there was, I mean, I certainly know I grew up with it, you know, kind of my consciousness of New York was, um, certainly when I was a teenager, I just thought I want to go there. I want to live there. Mm, I don't want to what, what about it made you think that's so much better than Los Angeles? <laughs> I'd watch too many Woody Allen movies. Oh, sure. Um, no, I, I was, you know, I was, I was drawn to it, I think, because it, struck me and I might add struck me from afar, um, as being more authentic, more intellectual, more mm. culturally my scene. Um, and you know, I did live in New York for many years and I'm, I, I love it. 
Um, but I, um, I guess what I finally found is that I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at home here mm. and, uh, you know, and, and I think, I think that the balance sheets for either city for any city, almost, you know, it, it tends to work out about equal, mm. you know, there are marvelous things about Los Angeles. There are certainly things about New York that I miss and yearn for, mm. but that I finally just decided to, to embrace this place with all of its problems mm. and all of my problems and see if I could reconcile them. Mm. Cause I think that's a, I think that's a rewarding thing to do if you're a writer or you're a person is try to make your peace with where you're from. See if you can make your problems somehow compatible with the problems of the place you, or find the place with problems compatible with your own. Sure. I think it's like any other kind of relationship. It's what, that's what one wants. Mm. Yep. You have also done work in the capital I industry. I mean, what, was there a time when, when you realized when you were, you had an awareness going on and you realized you were doing research conscious, consciously or unconsciously for a novel about agents in some sense? No, no, there really wasn't. I, I, um, I have worked in the industry. I worked somewhat reluctantly as an executive and as a producer and then less reluctantly as a screenwriter, um, which I still do. And I, um, I found it, I don't, you know, I never, I never felt consciously I was doing research. If, if anything, I, I, for a long time felt, well, I don't know how one would ever want to write about the movie business because how could one do it without just, you know, uh, falling into that trap of some, of trying to satirize something that's self-satirizing or <laughs> criticize something that's self-critiquing. Right. Um, but you know, eventually there too, I like to think that I gained a little bit of adult perspective and realized that it was, it was really just, just a, you know, a culture like any other culture worth, worth thinking about seriously and, and, um, trying to, uh, make some sort of, some sort of acceptable, uh, you know, pact of recognition with. Yes. Yeah. We've alluded to the traps of writing about Hollywood, but tell me the, the traps, the traps your characters face working in Hollywood, being agents, starting their own agencies, trying not to steal each other's clients, but doing it anyway sometimes. What what do you see as the the, 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 the sirens, I guess, that call out to these characters, especially of the older generation, uh, that they avoid or don't avoid? I think all of them are dealing, again, with something that, that they're dealing within the industry with something that's not necessarily industry-specific, which is, which is the, the problem of success. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, for everybody who's 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 pursuing a goal, um, you know, the, the, the question becomes, well, what happens when you attain it? Mm. Um, and, you know, particularly when that goal is, is, um, you know, materially lavish in its rewards, which I think, which I think creates a very, very specific set of, of problems because it then becomes hard to double down and think you'll just, you'll just pursue something bigger. Right. What happens if there isn't anything bigger to pursue and yet you're still left with the impulse to keep pursuing mm. as we all, probably will be until we drop. Um, you know, and I, and I, and there too, I felt that, you know, Bo in particular was a really good vehicle for, um, for contending with that, you know, a man of sort of seemingly, seemingly unending appetite. Um, and yet with enough conscience and, and, and just enough intelligence to really realize that, um, that you can't live like that, that, you know, sooner or later, uh, <laughs> and to quote Oliver Stone, you know, how many yachts can you water ski behind? Um, you know, like yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, um, so I think of that as being the primary thing that they're, that they're contending mm -hmm. with, which is again, 
you know, hopefully something that, uh, that, you know, one finds in, in all kinds of strong drama, which is what are the costs of getting what you want? Mm. I, I, I recall that of course, Bo has success as a, as a, as an agent, as well as a producer, but I think of real Hollywood stories and for some reason, the producer, the successful producer is always held up as, I mean, I guess Don Simpson always gets brought up in terms of someone, depending on how you look at it, made a monster by a success or was monstrous and was made more monstrous by a success or was purely a victim of, of just pushing harder and harder to satiate his desires. Uh, why do the successful producers seem to rise in the, in, in the zeitgeist as like they, they're the worst? You know, you know what I mean? I'm not know, saying it's true, but I, I, I do know what you mean. And it's a, it's a, um, you know, I've, I've certainly witnessed it, you know, on, on any number of occasions, I think that I've seen, you know, people in Hollywood who come in as assistants and you think, oh, they're so nice. And then you encounter them later and you just think, what happened? Um, and I think part of me thinks that, that it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a culture, you know, sometimes I look at contemporary Hollywood and I see it as a culture like the Marines. It's like it actually is sort of die casting people into being a certain way. In other words, you go on somebody's desk, they abuse you for a certain number of years. And, you know, this is not an original idea. We've, we've seen it in, I don't know, that movie Swimming in Sharks, like mm, gave yes. you that. Exactly. Um, and I think that's a common enough story. Um, but again, I think unto itself, it's not a very interesting one. I mean, if there's anything that I was really chasing in this book, it's that the you know, that, that the monsters really aren't that monstrous. Mm. And, you know, there are, there are generations of monsters and there are different types. Mm. Um, it's, you know, one, one question that the book seems to, you know, postulate is whether the character of Emily White, who on the one hand, you know, does not seem, um, monstrous in the way that Bo seems monstrous, mm. but I'm not sure which of them is actually the more monstrous <laughs> figure in the end. There's, there's a line that, that Bo says to Emily when she hears the rap that he's playing in his car and she asks, do you really like that stuff? And he says, people like it and I'm people. And that seems to be a key into Bo's character, but it's also, it seems to make all the sense in the world and also no sense at all. I mean, you know what, maybe that's the kind of line you want to go for. Well, what's, what's I the... was thinking of that line when you were asking me about Bo's taste. Yes. Um, and I was thinking that as being kind of a key key to it, which is to say it is, it is nonsense. And I, and I see that kind of logic, uh, in Hollywood right. fairly often, which is to say, I have, you know, the, the taste of someone who, who has no taste except what they're told right. they should be liking. Um, it's, it, it's like this. I mean, maybe you've had these moments, but you'll be sitting next to somebody, uh, on a train or what have you, and you'll hear their headphones. They'll have earbuds and listening to music and you hear a recent number one hit. You'll hear, you know, a song that's been topping the charts, that's been inescapable in the, in the, in in the public realm, but somebody's actually listening to it on their earbuds. And I think to myself, that seems wrong. I know it's a huge hit, but that's not something a person listens to. That's something people listen to. So it, I just have never, it sounds odd to say, I don't understand. I don't understand when I hear somebody listening to a big hit because people are listening to it, but a person doesn't like that. A person doesn't like Pete, right? Well, I'm going to, ha I'm going to hesitate on that one because I think in a lot of ways that, that, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm going to hesitate not because I don't, um, I mean, I know exactly what you mean. Mm. And I also know that, uh, the novelist in me is, you know, has that sort of contrarian instinct to go mm. towards things that, that feel like private discoveries rather right. than, than, uh, 
kind of reflexive communions. Now, I'm not saying um, popular equals bad either. No, Just to clear that up. No, I, I, I know you're not, yeah. and 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 neither am I. But what I what I am what I'm also saying is again, I think looping back to, um, to question, uh, you know, what what we mean by taste and the importance of taste. There's a mm. there's a wonderful book by a Canadian writer named Carl Wilson called what we talk about when we talk about love. And it's, uh, is that what it's called? It's about, um, it's about Celine Dion. It's not, it's yes, not the Raymond yes, Carver. Yes. It has a title that's something yeah, like that. I think, I think the title might be the same, but in any case, yeah, yeah. that, that, that book I've, I've read about that book. I've, it's a, I, I want to pick that up. It is a fantastic book. Mm. Um, it's not, it does not quite share the title with, with, right. uh, with the Carver collection, but it is, uh, you know, it, it's a really good interrogation of, of, you know, what, like, you know, taste as a sort of, uh, uh, you know, status tool and things like right. that. Um, and you know, when I think about Bo in the movie, it strikes me that, uh, when he actually exercises his own taste or when he is involved in, mm. in producing the things that would seem most to reflect it, um, that taste is at once problematic, but not, not lowbrow or stupid. You know, we mm. see him trying to produce, uh, the Tulane blacktop kind of movie. We see him, uh, trying to produce a Robert Stone novel, mm. um, you know, th these are not these. These seem to be the places where he's exercising something that that feels closest to what you would call his own taste, mm. um, which is not what you'd expect at all. Um, and I do think you know that, that there too. I wanted to sort of clarify that you know the the idea of of producers and agents and people in Hollywood as as vulgarians is just is just uh, uh, incomplete. Mm. Is what I would say. I see. I don't want to put down Celine Dion yet, as in I don't want to drop the subject yet, because in that book, from what I've read about it, there's this question looming over it. Celine Dion is both super popular, mm -hmm. and you personally don't know anybody who likes her, for most people. Uh, so is it that, same with a lot of Hollywood movies, like you, see, you, know, you see the the movies put out by, say, Adam Sandler's company that are not his movies, but sort of the, the tier below that, that still make a lot of money, but it's like you know they're popular, but you don't know who's watching them exactly. Is it, is it that these things, pe a lot of people like them just enough to not, not experience them? Nah, I think, first of all, I think that there's a definite um, distinction here that's sort of, it's not identical to, but it's kind of akin to the red state, blue state. Mm. You know, I mean, I live in Los Angeles and, and uh, well, I know a couple of Republicans, but not many compared to the, you know, and at the same time, um, there are a lot of them. And I think, you know, that the same can be said. I think, to, I think that our tastes and our, um, you know, our, our, our tastes like our politics, our tastes, which in many respects are our politics, mm. um, are, uh, can, you know, can, can really, um, can really be very insular and can really, uh, lead us into an, into an insular space. I mean, I don't know very many people. I'm not sure that I know anybody who, um, you know, listens to Celine Dion without irony. Um, and you know, the only person I know who, who listens to a tremendous amount of top 40 radio is my, is my eight year old daughter. Uh, but that does not mean, um, that there aren't a lot of people who do. And furthermore, it doesn't in any way, shape or form indicate that my aesthetic impulses are superior to theirs. It's just mm. different. And that's what fascinates me is What's the, is what the nature of the difference is. I mean, does that does the question occupy your own mind as much as it does mine? And things get a lot more interesting when you say that movie isn't good, that movie isn't bad, but how are they different? Uh, yeah, 
I mean, I, I do ask that question. Sure. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it's a major preoccupation, but I, mm -hmm. you know, I try not to rely. I try not to fix my own tastes too aggressively. I mean, mm -hmm. of course we all do. We all say, I like this. I don't like that. But, you know, certainly, and especially when it comes to, when it comes to literature and when it comes to writing, you know, I, I, and music and movies, I like, I circle back a fair amount to things that I, mm. you know, used to think I didn't like, mm. um, you know, and I, and I think, you know, especially, especially with, you know, I mean, being a, being a writer and you read literature and a book is never the same book twice, right. you know, mm. what's, what's something you have circled back to that you were sure well, wasn't for you? Uh, I won't say, I mean, this is certainly nothing that I dismissed, but I think of, I think of Madame Bovary, a book that I didn't really understand until I read it a third time. Uh, I read it when I was 18. I read it again when I was almost 30. And both of those times it left me quite cold. Uh, and then I read it when I was 40, uh, and in, the, and, and just initiating a, a divorce. And I thought, Oh my God, this is the most amazing shattering novel ever. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, again, I think of, uh, I think of Jane Austen as someone that I made several assaults on in my twenties before I really, uh, had an epiphany. <laughs> uh, yeah, little, you had to know the epiphany was coming because there were multiple assaults. Well I, well, I, I mean, I think, sure. And I might add, you know, would I, would I make that, would I, uh, would I spend as much time trying to find my, find a way to love an Adam Sandler movie? Probably not. I don't know that I would. But, uh, but you know, the, the, the obverse is also true. There are, there are books and writers that I've cared passionately for at mm -hmm. one point and then come back to later and thought, eh. <laughs> the, the, the issue of, of taste fixing, I see manifest itself in, in Bo's son, whom we mentioned, the one who becomes the novelist. Uh, he, we see him grow up and he goes through what I guess we would call phases, different aesthetics where he's, he's hardcore this way one year and hardcore that way the next wearing the wearing the the drag of a certain movement yeah. uh he likes certain writers or certain types of music and we've all we all, we all did it in in our teenage years no matter how old we are when when we were teenagers we we drew our battle lines with our tastes yeah. and i wonder i think about this a lot why did we do that was it just we didn't have anything else i i think when you're a teenager that stuff is it's what you have. I mean, you, 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 your allegiances, uh, while you are still forming as an individual, your allegiances are what protect you. Um, they were for me. And I think, you know, uh, you know, I, I do sort of show the, the boys in their, in their teenage years and into their early twenties as being very aesthetically and intellectually confident. Um, and, uh, and then perhaps becoming less. So some of them do, I think Nate becomes less. So I'm not sure that Severin doesn't become more so. And these these boys we see we see them mostly in their twenties in the nineteen nineties in Los Angeles. What tell, tell me about being that age in the nineties in Los Angeles? What uh, what what was that the era of? <laughs> um, that's a really excellent question. I mean, I, I I'm I'm somewhat preoccupied with the with the early nineties because again I feel like that's a that's a huge um, kind of tectonic cultural shift. Do we have a, do we have a grasp on it yet? I mean, not not sorry to interrupt, but I just want to no, I, work that in as well. I don't think that we do. I mean, I think that there are I think that there are certain uh, indicators uh, that came into play. I mean, my my own private belief is that you know that's when I mean after the after the Berlin Wall fell and mm. and uh, and you know global capitalism therefore won, um, we were left with a kind of metastatic impulse in American culture where things mm. became very very big. Uh, 
Jonathan Franzen in his essay, Perchance to Dream, has a has a, just an interesting line, a sort of throwaway line about um, it's something to the effect that the that the rich lateral dramas of local manners are being replaced by the the vertical hierarchy of of you know corporate preference. I I've just mm. misquoted him terribly, but even so, it's interesting. It struck me as being a but the the essence of it just sort of being that you know that American culture is becoming more uniform and more vertical. Mm. And, you know, that moment, the early nineties, which on the one hand was, you know, uh, quite, I was that age at that time I was in my early twenties and, and which is a very, um, exciting and perplexing time both. And it was an exciting and perplexing time, uh, for me as someone that was beginning to, you know, make my rapprochement with Los Angeles and mm. coming to embrace this place again. And, um, and experiencing all those things at once, experiencing the possibilities of young life, the, the frustrations, the fears. Um, and I just found that a very rich place to be experiencing it and also a very rich place, therefore, in the book to, to stage that, those questions. You have this trio of boys, Nate, Severin and Will. They, they get the rumor of a Guns N' Roses show. On the strip, yeah. they don't like Guns N' Roses, but they com they're compelled to go to the Guns N' Roses show as if it were a force of nature. What is going on? Well, um, there are several things going on there. I mean, one 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 real basic thing is I think they're being I think they're they're this isn't a sort of compliment to the question you were asking about about Bo and commerciality and and what we've just been discussing, which is you know I think they're I think they're compelled by. Um, a secret desire to let their guard, let their aesthetic guard down mm -hmm. and participate in something that they know is, is politically wrong and, uh, aesthetically a little reprehensible and at the same time, kind of excellent. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that, you know, in a strange way, uh, you know, the movies still do that on occasion, you know, uh, even though it's, you know, I feel like even now that the sense that the need to see the blockbuster starts to feel more like a, more like a glum patriotic duty than uh, like uh, a, uh, uh. than like a participation in a ritual. But, but I, you know, the way, as you ask that question here, I think, yeah, that's what they're doing. They're mm -hmm. they're That is a moment where they're, they're succumbing to their father's, mm -hmm. uh, belief system. He probably had a few Guns N' Roses tapes in the year that they were most relevant because they were, well, they're at the top of the charts. Of course, I've got this, uh, I've got, I don't even forget, you use your illusion. I, I don't know which, I don't know which album he would have in there. Well, the, I mean, the other aspect of it was, of course, that I just felt that that was such an, um, such an iconic Los Angeles thing. Right. You know, the well, band a, was an iconic Los There's Los another iconic element there. I mean, opening for Guns N' Roses is LA Guns and the bands that have had some intermingling, but narratives that split off starkly. The story of Guns N' Roses and LA Guns, I mean, what is, what is that story to you? Well, you know, I think the book is fairly preoccupied throughout, you know, not preoccupied, but it certainly cycles, circles around and around to the question of, um, you know, the difference between the star and the also ran, mm -hmm. um, you know, in a certain sense, all the people in the book, all the primary people in the book are also rans that, you know, they're, they're not, um, you know, that the actor that, 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 uh, Bo is closest to does not become a star. Um, the book opens with a scene that, you know, possibly involves George Clooney, possibly <laughs> involves some guy who just, 
may have looked a little like George Clooney. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the different ways that the book is trying to negotiate too the 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 question of um, you know what is the what is the psychic power of fame and what is the psychic cost of fame. Um, you know, what, what does it mean? And this is again, not even a Hollywood question. It's like, what does it mean anymore to have a, to have a private life? What's the difference between your private life and your public life? And since we all, you know, have social media at this point, we all do have a public life. Are are we interested in the private life of George Clooney in the exact same way? We're interested in the private life of a coworker. We often see, uh, we want to know details because of the familiarity we feel. I'm infinitely more interested in the private life of my coworker, (laughs) but I think I say we in the humanity sense, I I understand what you mean. And the answer on the one hand is of course not, Mm. but on the other hand, um, sure. Mm. I mean, you know, all of us are, all of us are sort of, uh, limited by what we can perceive and interested in cracking that, that, that limitation in order to, to find some, some proof that other people are like us. You know, I think what we, what we all want most in the world, you know, I, I think, I think on some primal level, you know, human beings just want to know that they're like others or that others are like them, that they're, that their peccadillas and their weirdness is not hopelessly, um, you know, uh, existentially crippling. Right. And, you know, in, in so many ways, you know, that the sort of fixation on the private lives of famous people, I think has to do with, um, you know, on the one hand, we're all trying to inoculate ourselves against our own faults and flaws and all somehow imagining that if we can just become the person that everybody else is looking at, we won't have the burden of our private life anymore. Nothing could be further from the truth. The opposite is true. Do, do we want, we want to know the celebrities are like us, but do we also want to be reassured that they aren't like us? I mean, I think of growing up, you know, when the moment when you see at, at your teacher at the grocery store, it's always like, whoa, you don't belong in this context. Uh, you, you have just, you have just gotten out of the sphere where you belong in my mind. I, we, we also don't want to be, to, to see these, them brought low, right? We don't because we want to sustain our illusion that it's possible to escape from the burden of ourselves. Mm. Um, I would like to <laughs> sustain that fantasy at times. And I'm sure, again, I, I would imagine that, that, uh, that most people do. It's a very human thing to, to, to want. The voice in the book, when it follows certain characters, it hints that these characters believe that Hollywood is not classy anymore compared to some prelapsarian era. Uh, or you know, the, I think of a line about actresses having turned into the word wasn't college and vultures, but it was college and something. I mean, that was a, for me a metaphor for the whole thing. Have, have we always thought that Hollywood has gone to the dogs in that sense? I don't think it's about Hollywood going to the dogs. I think that really is a that's a culture wide thing. And I think it's, so it's all going well, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily frame it in terms of decay, but I would frame it in terms of, of a decline of, of manners. And Mm -hmm. one hardly has to look at the movie business at all to realize that that's, that that's true. Mm -hmm. One looks at mad men and one sees a world in which people behaved, you know, in no sense better, Mm -hmm. you know, in many respects worse, but, uh, but I think there were, there were just a different set of social codes mm. at that time. And, and Hollywood has participated in reshaping that, those social codes aggressively. I mean, that this, the, the book really kind of, I think lifts off with the decline of the, the, the Hayes code mm. in 1968. And, you know, that changed what could be represented in the movies, which changed the movies for a while for the better, I think quite for the better. Mm. Um, but then it also, you know, led to, uh, people, 
seeing different standards of what constituted public language, what constituted public behavior, uh, what constituted private behavior. You know, I think we're still, I think we're still sorting that out. We always will be. There's a colleague that Bo has in the book for much of the book, um, who, to whom he looks up, Williams Farquharson the yeah. third. This man was one of the most fascinating in the book to me because he seems to operate by his own social codes that are social code, codes of a slightly previous era that are a little, he adheres more rigidly, maybe more in a more disciplined way. What, do, what how do you describe that quality about this man? Um, yeah, he's an interesting character. He's a, a um, and in many ways, you know, more, an even more confused one than Bo mm -hmm. and confused in that way that I think people, people who think that they know their own codes, mm -hmm. people who really think that they know how they are, um, usually are, the most deluded and the most troubled, mm. um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, again, I think that's, I think that's one of the many things about, uh, about, you know, Bo is that for all of his, for all of his self delusion and his foolishness, I think he, he, he doesn't fool himself into thinking he can't be fooled. Mm. And, you know, Williams is a, is a character, the, the elder Williams is a character who, um, who, evidently does evidently thinks that he can control himself. He can, he can coordinate his impulses. Mm. Um, he can, you know, he can, he can rule things. And, um, of course in, in a way that turns out to be very difficult for all concerned, he discovers that that's not true. Mm. It's something, it reminds me of what the, what the women in the book say about Bo is they're not sure why they're going along with him. They're not sure why they're sleeping with him, but he just has a, he has a quality that they don't see much, especially if they're in the industry. Is that, that a way to frame it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think what Bo has going for him is he's, he's, he's natural. He's, mm. he's not artificial. Mm. Um, and, uh, I mean, if I had to guess, don't ask me to know, uh, too much about those selection processes necessarily, but I would say that that is, that is kind of a, a key aspect of Bo's appeal is just how, just how comfortable he is within his, uh, supremely warty <laughs> person. Hmm. Does Hollywood think it's less relevant than it is now or more relevant than it is? Which way, which way is the delusion listing at this point? What, what do you mean at the moment? Does the, yeah, does the at, by, by now, itself? by now, because I see shifts in this throughout the history of it in the book, mm -hmm. but it seems like at any point, Hollywood is always more relevant than people, the people in it seem to think it is or less relevant. Do you think that's even gaugeable? I guess. I don't know how that would, I don't really know how that would gauge itself. I mean, on the one hand, I feel like most of the people I know in Hollywood are struggling with a sense of, of, well, people I know in the feature business are probably struggling somewhat with a sense of, of, you know, wondering what its function is anymore. Oh, really? I might be alone in that. So I'm, I'm, I, I might just be speaking for myself, but I think that, you know, there, that fewer movies get made than used to get made. Mm. Um, more and more of those movies are, are tent poles. Mm. And so I would imagine that anyone in Hollywood who has any aesthetic sense at all is grappling with that as a question. You just have mm. to, you have to say to yourself, well, what kind of movies can I, can I make? Mm. And the truth is you, you know, that the kind of movies that you can make in Hollywood has gotten much narrower. Um, I don't know that that necessarily translates into, uh, anxiety about reduced relevance mm. to the culture. I mean, people still go to the movies, the movies make uh, a tremendous amount of money. Mm. Um, you know, no matter how, 
aesthetically piffling we might think a lot of them are, um, those movies still take in huge quantities of dough if they succeed. And so I doubt there's too much hand-wringing about, about relevance. Now, whether, you know, when you look at the cultural conversation and you realize people talk about dramatic television or, you know, cable television as uh, in a way that they you know, with a, with a vigor that they did not used to. Mm. I don't remember very many conversations about what was on TV, mm. um, you know, in my twenties. And was that definitely a lesser medium regarded as a lesser medium in those days. Sure. Mm. Oh yeah. I mean, TV was considered the, the, you know, and if not the bottom rung, a lower rung mm. than features. Uh, that certainly is not true anymore. Right. I, I myself, I, th I think moved to Los Angeles for the movie going possibilities. How much movie going do you do yourself at this point? Less than I used to, but mm. some, um, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I, you know, I, I have a, I have a daughter. So of course I take her to see things that she wants to see. Mm. Uh, but it's, I do not go as often as I used to. Mm. Um, and I don't think that I, I, I certainly do go, but it's, it's hard to get excited to see movies that feel entirely pre digested. Mm, I, I see. You know, I, I know what you mean, but you know, I, I wonder if, because we live here in Los Angeles. The, the other week, I was, I think, three in a row. I, I saw a, a new Brazilian movie, and then Tulane Blacktop, and then um, Sunset Boulevard. Well, I'll go so, see those movies any day of the week. Right. <laughs> yeah. I will too. But do, does living in Los Angeles or New York, for that matter, put us in a bubble about what the movies are? Um, well, it certainly puts us in a different position. I mean, you know, you, one, uh, you know, it's it's one has more more to choose from. Hmm. Um, although again, it depends. I mean, I think I went when I was, I was in Iowa city a month or two ago and I went to see uh, a French film, Holy Motors. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. And, uh, you know, and I thought, well, this is a, an interesting movie to be seeing in the in downtown Iowa city, but here I am. Mm. Um, I, I don't think it puts us in a bubble about what the movies are because I think, mm. you know, certainly the, the, the mainstream movies are being released everywhere. The question right. is, you know, what about movies like that, that aren't necessarily being, uh, you know, I happen to be in a university setting, which is why I was able to see that movie in Iowa city. You probably couldn't see it in downtown Cedar Rapids. Mm. And I, it was, it's like all, all eras, all cinematic eras exist at, at once here. Don't they? That's, that's how I envision it. It's, it's not true everywhere. I don't think, I don't think, I mean, here it's, it's sort of like if you could go to a movie and not see a new one, right. you could go every day. Yes. Well, sure. There is an, there's, you know, at, for obvious reasons, an acute sense of cinematic history mm. that happens here. Um, and that I hope will always happen. I mean, you know, one, one of the things that I did think about when writing this book or did, it wasn't even something I thought about. It was just something I felt, which was, I wanted, you know, I wanted to capture what, what on the one hand felt very private, which was a, a, a sense of, um, you know, the Los Angeles that has disappeared and the, and the, and the eternal Los Angeles, the one that, uh, that exists even after it's disappeared. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and put like that, I really think that's, that's part of what, books, any books are supposed to do for us is sort of, um, you know, present us with, with, uh, or good books are supposed to do it anyway, which is present us with a eternal matter, you know, with, with things that are gone and things that can never be destroyed. What, what element of Los Angeles jumps out at you as something that's always been here for you? Something that isn't going to go away. What, what's, what seems particularly non-ephemeral in your experience of Los Angeles? And I mean, this could be as concrete or as abstract as you want it to be, but something that, something that just seems like it's always been here in Los Angeles during at least your time here. It's a good question. And, uh, you know, part of me 
the uh, the tragedian in me wants to say nothing. Every, mm-hmm. Everything is going to be gone, and that's that's also I think articulated in the book. And and by everything, of course, I mean I don't mean that in an apocalyptic sense. I mean it in a personal sense. Mm-hmm. You know what what has been here? Well, in the most in the most private sense, my family has always been here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they will not always be here, but they are here now. Mm-hmm. You know, both the generation before me and the generation in front of me. Mm-hmm. Is there more in the setting for you? Do you think there, do you think there's more in the setting for you, literarily speaking? Oh sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm very conscious of not um, not wanting to constrain myself to writing dramas set in Los Angeles. My mm. my first novel is set in the Midwest. Um, the book that I've just started is uh, is set uh, a little bit of it is set here, but there also thus far seem to be sections set in uh, San Francisco, London, Iowa City, mm. um, Iraq. Um, all of which might, any of which could be rewritten into oblivion, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in other places. However, um, Los Angeles retains a kind of power for me. Um, and I, I would, uh, I would really not care to cheat myself of that as a, as a writer. And all of these places you think about these non Los Angeles places, if you're anything like me, they just cast more light back into Los Angeles, don't they? Well, uh, they do. I mean, you know, in the sense that places all cast light onto one another. I mean, I think, uh, and likewise, there are sections of this book and very significant sections of it that are set in New York. Mm. Um, and that's, that's deliberate. You know, New York is sort of the, the, uh, the shadow matter to this book. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's a sense for me that, that somehow the little slivers of New York that make it into it are sort of there to offset the kind of, uh, brightness or, or, you know, so some some aspect of Los Angeles that that is that would otherwise be too relentless in this book. They are, they are a bit of the uh, the yin and yang. Are yeah. they not Los Angeles, New York? Is that too easy? <laughs> yeah, my, that might be a little that might be a little simple. But they are they are important complements. Even even if even if the way in which we make them that might be a little forced. Mm-hmm. You know, we think of Los Angeles as being the, the horizontal sunlit city and we think of of new york as being the more the more austere more grand one um you know and and again i feel like even describing them that way is somewhat reductive but they're they're different and they're in some ways opposed i think i've been speaking here at the los angeles review of books headquarters with matthew specter author of american dream machine founding editor of the los angeles review of books and much more we'll link to his various projects to what we know about them in the show notes. Matthew, thanks so much. Thanks, Colin. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall, and you can find much more at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks. Thanks.